Hey everybody, welcome to episode 77 of Literary Disco. Today we'll be joined by Todd's friend and colleague Jill Alexander Esbaum, whose new novel Housefrau has just been released. Jill selected a book of poetry for us to read and discuss, Interrobang, by Jessica Piazza. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me momentarily will be novelist and critic Todd Goldberg, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, and our special guest, Jill Alexander Esbaum. So... We have a special guest here today. Um, we have the lovely and talented Jill Alexander Esbaum, the author of Housefrau. Hi. And that's it, everybody. Have a good show. <laughs> <laughs> so Jill Alexander Esbaum is the author of Housefrau, which as of this week, and we are recording this on April 3rd, um, was number 16 on the that's New York tied Times. with 15. Best 15? Well, tied. Number 15 on the New York Times bestseller list after exactly one week of release. That's amazing. Um, So now, so now that means that any time Jill's name is mentioned, we have to say New York Times bestselling author. So that's the way you really should have introduced her because that's going to follow her for the rest of her life. I, I make my husband introduce me as that now. (laughs) (laughs) So exciting. Just call you that in bed. New York Times bestselling author. New York Times was selling out there. <laughs> no, but but I make him randomly introduce me to like the guy at the grocery store. And... <laughs> I think I'm, that's I'm, I'm so vain. So abuse your power. So uh, <laughs> I support. So that. that that's the important thing about right now for Jill is that her debut novel um, has rocketed up the charts. She has a New York Times bestselling novel. But prior to being a big time famous novelist, she was uh, a famous uh, not bestselling poet she has won two nea awards for her poetry which is basically like saying you know you're the greatest poet in the history of american letters no one gets two neas right like they give one and then like you might get another one if you die right like they give it to your heirs pretty much (laughs) yeah something like that yeah um she has published four books of poetry um she won the bakeless prize which is a big poetry prize she was in best american erotic poems um and on top of all of that, she also is my colleague at the University of California, Riverside's low residency MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. Which is my favorite thing about all of this. Yes, of course it is. <laughs> um, so she has had, she, and, and so the interesting thing about Jill on top of all of this stuff is, I, what I think is most interesting is she's the only person I've ever known who has published a book with a giant erect penis on it with a woman hugging it on the cover. Can, can you discuss that, Jill, briefly? Well, um, sure. Uh, the book is called Harlot. And while you may think it's a painting of me, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> My rear end is much smaller. Uh, but we have the same hair. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> funny you mentioned Jesus. It happens to be Good Friday. Uh, and Passover, right? Yes, um, it is also. Yeah, We so, got all our bases covered today. All the bases covered. It's well, except for like Ramadan, but right. um, and uh, the book. Well, okay. So the artist who painted that, it's a watercolor, is Cynthia Large, and she's her lovely. last name's Large. Yes. And she she made True, a book a with a giant things. erect cock. Yes, but she she also does a lot of religious art, and uh, uh, she's lovely, and. Uh, when I saw that painting, I fell in love with it, and I, my 
now ex-husband bought it for me. And when Reb Livingston, who is a lovely poet and who published the book um, through No-Tell Books, uh, accepted the book, I said, I want to use it because it's very fitting. And I feel like I could tell people it's just a giant mushroom. Um. <laughs> All right. And they believe you. Um, and one of my one of my favorite pictures. It's on my Facebook page. Uh, my godson, who is her son, is holding up the book. It's yeah, that's really funny. That's probably going to get you in prison at some point. <laughs> oh, he um, knows what a penis is. So, so for many years now, you've been a professional poet, um, and we we give poets a hard time on the show a lot because you know I, I don't should. understand most poetry, as you know, Jill. There's the whole poet voice thing, um, but you have been, as they say, in the game for a long time. Um, what what started you out as a poet before you became uh, a prose writer? Well, you don't have to fill up as much paper (laughs) and this was pre-Adderall so it was harder for me to pay attention and it turns out I'm really good at uh, condensing words and I like that it's a little bit of a game and I like words and I like what happens when words bump up against each other and um, you know I I, I think I privilege words over stories to begin with so um, which probably makes me a terrible novelist, but um, but I think that I think that that's where stories come from is is words, and I think that 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 at least for me is is uh, the place to begin. Uh, so I think that that's where where poetry came from. And when I was in college, I was taking short story classes, and I was you know, and I was taking poetry, uh, sorry, uh, playwriting workshops, and I was just I wound up writing like rewriting episodes of Cheers. So. <laughs> <laughs> They were terrible. I don't even like Cheers. How can you not like Cheers? That's like saying uh, you don't like America. Uh, Todd, I I was a good times girl. <laughs> All right. That's right. It's <laughs> a good point. Jill does have an affinity for the inner city comedies of the 1970s. It's true. It's true. I know an awful lot about black television. <laughs> So you started out doing the poetry because you thought it was easier at first, but of course it's not. You know, it's a pretty complex animal. Um, how, how have you seen it change since you started out? You know, you're you're a pretty formal poet, but you got looser, I think, probably as the years have gone on. Um, wow, did you just call me loose? I, 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 yeah. I did. I <laughs> you did, did didn't bit. you? Um, well, but see, that's just it. You know, uh, I, I, I guess I shouldn't have said easy, but... Uh, I found that the little game of writing formal poetry suited me, and uh, I enjoyed uh, trying to squeeze, <laughs> squeeze um, all of the all of the bits in there, you know, within the the little box of of a sonnet, for example, and uh, to to exploit the economy of language and to see what would happen when I really, you know, twisted the words around, you know, to see what rhyme did or or. Or you know what meter would do to meaning, you know s- poetry, sound, and sense. And you know at some point I realized that uh, you know you could write a sonnet and it would be perfectly lovely. But then if you went in and you just sort of screwed it up a little bit, you know just sort of messed it up, um, then that would change the outcome in kind of a brilliant way. Sometimes you know just going to put a little crack in the Liberty Bell which makes it more unique. You know, so you, right. you put a mole right. in that model's face and, uh, and it makes it more unique. Hmm. 
whatever her name is. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, Cindy Crawford. Yep. Yeah. That's the one. She was. Um, she was an important part of my childhood. <laughs> Do you remember the first conversation we had, Todd? <laughs> God, I hope not. I do. It was a. <laughs> what, was it something bad? It was a. What, it was, was about it? a woman who also was an important part of your childhood. Oh, was it? Um, was it Adrian Barbeau? It was. <laughs> and for some reason, you couldn't remember her name. And who's Adrian Barbeau? Her. I don't even know who that and is. And it came to oh, me. Oh God. Yeah, you so... do. She was on Maud. She was Maud's daughter. And if yeah, you and, so... and I don't know if you know this, but Maud's maid was Florida Evans. Was who? Of Florida. Of good times. Oh, no, I don't think I didn't know that. So Adrian Barbeau, um, for those of you listening who don't know, because you weren't born in the 1950s <laughs> or the 1970s, she was sort of this B-movie vixen. Um, so she was in, like, uh, Escape from New York. Um, and Maud. She, and Maud. She was most notable for me when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, for wearing um, exceptionally low-cut tops in action movies. Okay. Um, she was in one of the so, creep shows, I believe. Yeah, and I, she was. She was yeah. in a lot of horror movies. Um, and so I was at this uh, at this writers' conference in Northern California, and her memoir had just come out. And I was the the keynote speaker for this lunch, and I was seated next to her, and I'm like, oh my god, I, I've spent a lot of time with this woman as a child, and now here <laughs> she is sitting next to me, and uh, and she was with her husband. And I got up on stage to talk, and I was a little flummoxed, uh, just from like the whole sort of experience. And I said something that, at at the time, I thought seemed perfectly reasonable to say out loud in a room, which was, "Oh God, um, you know, Adrian Barbeau, it's so nice to see you again after having a deep and important physical relationship with you when I was 13. All right, um, good. And then I was I like, "Oh God, be. what did I just say?" Oh, what is Todd. wrong with me? <laughs> but she was very nice. She was very cool. Um, and her husband didn't beat the shit out of me. Thank God. Uh, I felt like a moron. So this was a long. This was like ten years ago. Oh God, it was it was horrible. But yes, that was. Um, she was another was important. So Cindy Crawford and Adrian Barbo. I just thought right. when you said that, I remembered. <laughs> yeah, it was, First conversation it was we ever had. So. <laughs> it was a, a bad conversation. So you, you spent all this time writing poetry, and then when did you decide that you wanted to write a novel? Well, when I was younger, as in like a kid, um, I used to read my dad's novels, and I think this is also something you and I share. I, my dad always read Sidney Sheldon, Harold Robbins, and also he read a lot of science fiction, um, uh, Robert Heinlein uh, books a lot, and I used to you know, steal them off the back of the commode and read them. I would always, and nobody cared. I would read those on top of my bed. I would read the Bible underneath my bed because I always like thought that was kind of weird reading the Bible in front of people. It was more of a private thing. And, uh, um, and I always thought I wanted to be a famous writer, um, not knowing at all what that meant. I didn't want to be a good writer. I wanted to be a famous writer. I also wanted to be the unknown comic, uh, which was weird anyway, but um, the, and so I, I, I thought about that, and I, I wrote a lot of stories, and, and they were awful. Um, but, you know, we all write awful stories, I think. And, and you know, I, I did that up until college when I started writing poetry more seriously. And, and when I went into graduate school, that's what I, I studied. Um, I, went, I went to University of Texas, and I had a Michener Fellowship, and, and, and there it was. Um, but the funny you, thing is... Do you remember, is though, the, do you remember huh? when you were a kid, though, like the point at which you stopped wanting to, to just experience the stuff you're reading and 
wanted to create it? Like, was there yeah, a, a third grade, point? third grade. In third fact, grade. Yeah. Wow. In fact, at my, uh, I had a, a librarian who was just absolutely amazing. And, um, she actually came to my book launch, uh, my third, my elementary school librarian. So oh, that wow. was, that was really neat. Um, I used to write like Beverly Cleary and stuff and she wrote me back and I, you know, told Beverly her Cleary her. wrote you back. Yes. Isn't that yeah. Neat? She seems awesome like that. I believe that. Oh my so gosh. Cool. Yeah. She's still with us, right? She's still, yeah, she's living? like 30,000 years old. Yeah, she's in her 90s. Yeah, she's she's very old. Um, yeah, no, she was she was, and I used to. But well, my girlfriends and I, when we were kids, we used to go to the library, um, and at, at our school, and help the librarian over the summer. I think we thought we were her peers, and we would. Uh, she would give us all these books to read, and we would help her shelf books, and and she would take us to go see movies. I mean, you couldn't do this now because people would think that she was crazy, but. Um, you know, she would take us to go see movies, and we'd shelf books and do inventory, and it was just really neat. We were library helpers, and, and that's when I, I started to really, you know, wanting wanted to write books. And I, I, I read everything. I mean, it wasn't just like, I mean, like, I never got into, like, Little House on the Prairie. I thought that was stupid, but, um, <laughs> you know. Did you watch the show, though? or did, did I thought that was stupid, too. I mean, like, you know, it's like the prairie dresses, and it's just not a good look. <laughs> So it was a fashion problem? Bullshit fashion. Like, ah. A little bit. I was really, in, I, okay, I was a tomboy to the max. I wore, for like five years, it was all tough skins, um, cowboy shirts with pearl snaps, uh, trucker hats, and windbreakers, cowboy boots, and I had a little bit of questionable hygiene, you know, like so, most so of you my- dress like everyone in Silver Lake. Yeah. Well, I guess so. I don't. I don't know what that is. Well, circa two thousand and four. Right. Yeah. Right. I'll I'll bring pictures. I, I one of my school pictures. I have like a Kool Aid mustache. It's it's real. Oh, and I'm wearing a velour shirt in that one. I look like a boy. Oh, I was lovely though. So so from early on, you wanted to write a novel, but you didn't do it until you, now, until two years ago, right? Is when you started right. to write it. Um, I wrote Had it. Have you when ever I... tried to write a novel before? Yes. And when I was living in Switzerland, I would, uh, I sort of half-assed it. And I was riding on a train uh, to go see a concert. I was on my way to Paris and I left the damn thing on the train. And I was so upset that I didn't write prose for a long time. It, I, it was just paper? So you didn't have it? Well, no, I, I did have it on my computer, but I had, it was, it was a long train ride and I had all my notes that I was writing on. Cause I like to, mm. I have got a thing with paper and pens and when I'm taking notes, it has to be on that. And all my important notes, I left it on the train. I was, ugh, it was horrible. So you were like uh, Hemingway? Is that who, who left all his shit on, on <laughs> yeah. the train? Writer? Oh, did he? I don't know. I yes. don't know. I, maybe everything, but you know, the rifle in the mouth, but. Maybe it was the yeah, best thing for your career. You lost everything and you had to start over again. It, yeah, it was it was a terrible book. So it was good and but you know <laughs> What was it I about? What was what was the terrible book about? It was about a young girl in high school in probably nineteen eighty six and her mom did some really bad things, but she hit, and her father was a priest and she, it was sort of a coming of age, not really quite a YA book. I don't know. It's, it, it wasn't good. <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> sort of flowers in the attic meets Thornbirds. Oh my gosh, I Thornbirds! I love that book. So I'm curious about when you were writing poetry, when you started writing formal 
poetry? Like if you're writing sonnets, would you were you were you writing these in a in workshop environments and what were people's reactions? Because I feel like oh, that's Oh, not even that. They were religious. Oh my god. So were you yes, kind of an outcast god, exactly. in your poetry community? I mean, cuz that's pretty pretty rare, right? Oh, sweet pea. I'm an outcast in every community. Um, um, yeah. It, yeah. And also they were a little bit erotic. So, so that didn't help. Um, I have, I have religious I have erotic formal poetry. Right. 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 Yeah. Not, not, oh, I mean, sometimes not all. And I had a teacher ban me from using the word thighs anymore because I was like obsessed with like writing about like, thighs and like what I would do to these I mean not me of course like the 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 eye in the poem you know to to these thighs and uh you know my first book heaven um it's not really erotic but there's there's some erotic overtones and it sort of follows the books of the bible and the liturgical calendar and there's a lot of Jesus in it and and it should be noted Jill has a, a master's in divinity on top of everything else yeah a little bit Awesome. So she's got she's got the writing degrees and the Jesus degrees. Yes. Perfect. Which is not something you see a lot of. <laughs> Emily Rapp. Right, Emily Rapp has has one as well. Has one as well. Can can you give us a sample though of an erotic religious poem? Do you do you, do you have one off the top of your head that you know? Um, one of mine? Yeah. Uh, let's see if I can recall one. And Jesus' penis is a slant rhyme, right? Yeah, Jesus' penis is a slant rhyme. Okay, let's see. I, I don't have a book in here, but so I'll lean into me as a steeple might, and I will turn your flesh to food as stars draw shepherds to our room on any Bethlehemic night. And I don't remember the rest of it. But that, that, that was, was great. Yeah. Woo! Not bad. And then the last line is, uh, as stars Oh, Christ was once a man like you. So that was the last line. But oh, um, I don't, oh it's called Sex Among the Christians. It's in my first book. <laughs> so really, like, really oh, 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 and then there's this one poem that begins, Imagine Me Elsewhere and Kneeling. And I, uh, and it's all about uh, Imagine praying. Me Elsewhere and Kneeling? Is that what you, is that yeah. how it begins? Yes, imagine, imagine Me Elsewhere and Kneeling. And uh, it's, it's about praying, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like so, students have to work really hard to kind of figure out where the erotic part is. Yeah, you said hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but my most famous erotic poem, this will be like carved on my, I don't like to say the word, so I'm not going to, but that thing that they, at the end, it's going to be, it's called, um, uh, oh, I don't remember what it's called, but um, on reading poorly transcribed erotica, like like that's the thing that I'm known for. It's just this stupid little poem that is poorly transcribed erotica. Would you like to hear it? Because I have this one memorized. Yes, yes. She stood before him wearing only pantries, as he groped for her, as he groped for her Volvo, under the gauze. She had saved her public hair. And his cook went hard as a fist. <laughs> they fell to the bad uh, as he shoveled his duck into her posse. Uh, still, his enormous election raged on. Her beast heaved as he sacked them, and his own nibbles went stuff as well. Um, let's see. 
Uh, let's see. I don't remember the last oh, part. God. But the last line is, oh, it was all that he could do not to comb. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's pretty funny. That's so yeah. great. That's good stuff. It's been, it's been forwarded a lot. Um, but, yeah, I, I missed a line in there. But that was the first poem I ever published online. And uh, Reb Livingston published it, and that's how I met her. Is it still online? We'll, oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll put it out to our Twitter people today. Yes. And, uh, and let them read it. Yes. Um, and that was the one that was in the Best American Erotic Poems. And it's interesting, of course, that it's not even erotic, unless you're really into um, malaprops. Well, but you know what? What's funny is... See, I think funny is erotic because sex is kind of funny because, like, weird body parts are bumping up against each other, and it should be funny. I mean, it should be comfortable, and it should be relaxed in this beautiful, intimate way. Right. I agree. Yeah. So are you... Naked people are funny looking. Jill, are you teaching poetry with at Todd's program, or... I am. He doesn't let me teach fiction. So, so is there any way a student can shock you? Are you one of those like teachers that just you've seen it all when it comes to crazy, mm -hmm. crazy student poetry that you're just like, eh, try harder. I don't <laughs> think they could shock me. Um, they can make me sad. Yeah, I cry a lot. I cry. A, I'm like, I do. I cry all the time. <laughs> it's true. Ask Todd. Sometimes during meals. The only tears. <laughs> the only tears I've experienced in a in a in a workshop were in a poetry. Not I. I wasn't crying, but there were lots of tears shed. Was the professor that. crying? Because that's what happens in no, my workshops. No. No. So you're the professor crying. Because I of do. The I can't help of it. Poetry, or because you feel like somebody is exposing. No, because I'm fucked up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I no. didn't get a refill. Because I didn't get a refill. No, no. Okay, so like I have a, a like that's how I know I'm near truth, and you know, not because of the beauty of poetry, but that's you know when we're when we're on to something, or when I'm when I can tell they're open, or I'm open, or you know I'm sad, <laughs> which is often. Right. Right. You read the book. I mean, there's a lot of sad in there. Yeah. yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about about Housefrau. So you so you had a you had sort of the dream experience happen. So you wrote your book. Um, you got a literary agent. Um, the literary agent sends the book out. Every publisher literally in the world wants to buy it. You sell it at auction to Random House. Random House then goes and takes the book to the Frankfurt Foreign Rights book sale. At London. And, to London, rather. And sells it to how many countries? Um, am I allowed to say how many now? I think we're up yeah, to one eight. To eight. No, one eight. One one eight eighteen. Yeah. So you and large and large print. And large print too. So the blind and every foreigner can read it. So you sell it to eighteen countries. You get on the front page of Publishers Weekly, every single book news uh, magazine and and uh, website on earth picks up the news of Housefrau and you for your first novel, and then you have to wait nine months for the book to come out. What uh, what was that like? I cried a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's a pattern here. I'm so, a little bit high strung. Right. So you cried a lot. That there was uh -huh. that part. So all all this great stuff happens. Are you able to to measure the great stuff with the holy shit? This is now happening. Emotions. I keep forgetting that it happened. That it's happening. 
I totally did. I mean, you know, I'd be cleaning the cat box and then it was like, oh, crap. I got a book coming out. Random House. It's Random House. It's like Bennett Surf, you know? Right. Um, used to read the joke books he edited. He was on What's My Line? You know, um, <laughs> David Ebersoff. I mean, he's fantastic. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a dream. I mean, like, I'm living the dream that, you know, I forgot that I had when I was a kid. Um, it made me miss my dead parents because I felt like they would have been really happy. And the book's dedicated to my dad um, because he always said, why don't you write me a dirty book? <laughs> and you did. You wrote, you wrote a very dirty book. Um, well, so trashy. And he said trashy. Write me a trashy novel. Trash. Make me rich. Yeah, a little bit. So yeah. you wrote you know, a, a book about a very difficult woman. The, you have, I think, the best opening line I've read in a million years, um, which is, uh, Anna was a good wife, mostly. From that point forward, you know that you're about to read a novel about a horribly fucked up person who does really difficult things. Um, you know, what, what's, the, what's the experience been for you of having to talk about a, a woman who is breaking all the rules? You know, it never occurred to me that people wouldn't like her, um, which is funny because a lot of people don't like her. It never occurred to me people wouldn't like her. I mean, I, I knew that they would find her difficult or be shocked you know, or be like, oh, no, she didn't. But, you know, and there would be this one moment where everybody would go, ooh, you know, and and that would be different for everyone. But, you know, the every time I read it, and I've lived with her a long time as I wrote this, you know, I, I thought there would be more empathy. And I, I do hear from readers that they, that they uh, are able to dislike her and understand her at the same time. And that makes me feel mm -hmm. good because I feel like I've done my job. Mm -hmm. as a, a writer right and yeah. uh, that was it was difficult you know but you know if if a main character in a novel is a guy and he goes around having sex with every single person on earth um you know maybe he's an action hero in your novel you have a woman who has sexual encounters with a bunch of different people strangers and people she knows alike um you know in the midst of a marriage while raising two children um, and living this sad life in Switzerland, and you have to then answer for her. A male novelist doesn't need to answer for a male protagonist that has sex with everybody. Um, Do you really think that's true? I mean, like, that yes. also never even occurred to me. It never even occurred to me to worry about that. Like, that well, is you shouldn't at have the to bottom. Worry about it, but it's a fact, right? It's the fact that people are, are talking to you about it. It is, but like that's the least of my concerns. The, the, high, the, the greatest of my concern, concerns is to write a good book. Do, right. do you know what I mean? Because like, like that's politics versus like what happens. The truth is, is that people go around and they do these things to each other. They have affairs and they hurt each other and they are underhanded and they are sad. And whether that, whether people want to say, well, if a man writes this book, they'll be judged or not judged. It doesn't matter because people do this. And I, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I can withstand that criticism. Like, of all the criticisms I can't withstand, and as you know, there are many, <laughs> this is one that I feel like I can withstand, you know? Mm -hmm. is that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think for a first novel, you know, that, that's, a, that's a heavy load that you have to, to wear. I mean, you just wrote a book. You don't have to defend or someone said you know you shouldn't have to question an author about their character you're not the people that you write about 
Um, I mean, if that were true, uh, you know, I'd be a mass murdering um, spy who may have killed his wife and daughter and ran out of the lawn to bar tabs. Um, Did you do that? No. I mean, I never killed Wendy. I mean, my other wife, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but see, I think the problem the Jews, begins so. even before the criticism. I think the problem is that so many of us writers have internalized this problem of likability, you know, and we feel mm -hmm. we, we approach our characters and our stories and think, well, we got to make sure that they're likable or that somebody's rooting for them. And that's once you have that thought, you're fucked, you know, like you can't ever approach a story that way. You have to approach it from a much more sort of organic, instinctual human place that that's may take your character somewhere that that other people aren't going to like and that that's okay you know and, and i think the irony is that the more you end up writing in that direction uh the more likely you have a bestseller you know because i think we all are attracted to stories where we're surprised that we like somebody and we you know we're we're, we're maybe confused by the fact that we like somebody or that we empathize with a character and so i think that too many writers you know myself included have had that thought at the wrong point when you're when you're starting out on a project and i think that that's that's the paralyzing and i you know it's it's mm. especially in the film industry that is something that you always get told like we have to be rooting for this character we have to like this person and it's like why why does that matter you know it's like as long as we understand yeah. what they're after we don't care like you know they're after something as long as they want something what you know and then we but that's the, really the smart. problem is yeah. you know especially when you're when you're dealing with obviously in the film industry you're dealing with work a work that will ultimately be by committee because you have to get a crew at least to film it or a bunch of actors to act it out and then you know if not a whole studio to finance it and so there's all this concern with with trying to please the most amount of people even to just get the work done um and so i think that's why often TV shows and especially TV shows, but movies have such bland characters just because no one's willing to take that chance. Uh, but I, I, I think it's sad that in novels and poetry too, people f feel that impulse and, and they question themselves because of it. And so well, it's... Uh, when I talk to people about books and they, well, first of all, I must be a sociopath or something because I've never in my life been like, I don't like this character. Therefore I don't like this book. That's just not right. a response. For for me, a legitimate response. So I, I found myself arguing with people. They'll be like, oh, I hate... Oh, I'm going to choose a TV show because it's going to be easier. They'll be like, oh, I hate Game of Thrones because they're all bad people. But I watch it every right. week, but I hate it. And I'm like, no, actually, you like <laughs> it. You actually like it. You're just uncomfortable with the emotional response of being close to these unlikable characters but you act but as a piece of art right, right. you are but enjoying it's like, it. it's like even the right word right it's like even the, like like doesn't even like or dislike doesn't even like okay i feel like i benefited from not knowing what the hell i was doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah you yes. know what i mean like nobody told me nobody told me do this or not do that because i would have been stifled i think by by you know worrying about these things because who cares if you like them or not i mean like your pals like your your family or dislike your family but like the novel i mean i just want to i want to stay right. engaged right you know? 
you know, my favorite, my favorite characters. I mean, I love reading Patricia Highsmith. I love reading, you know, the Donna Tartt's Secret History. I love Joyce Carol Oates. I mean, like Joyce Carol Oates rarely writes about like pleasant people. You know, I got a, I got a little bit of a um, beef with Joyce Carol Oates though. Me and Julia both actually. Yeah, yeah. Why? She said we laughed she, too um, loud. Yeah, she had us kicked out of a hotel once. She did not. Oh right! I remember you telling <laughs> me that. Go. Well, she's she's got this owl thing going on. I guess we didn't. Yeah. She she has like she's elderly. She 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 might have thought we were too loud in an area, admittedly that was called a quiet area At in a like, hotel. <laughs> it was oh, so early. Yeah. It was like two or two thirty in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. Yeah. We. Yeah. JCO. We might have been in the wrong <laughs> as it relates to George Carlin's. <laughs> was it after her husband? Was it right when her husband uh, died? I don't remember. I, I think don't so. Know. Um, I don't know. Jill. That would be horrible. You guys are getting less and less likable in this story. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. So, see, I, we could so write here's this. the basic we story, could, listeners, could. just so you know what we're talking about. So, we are at AWP, which is the um, the Associated Writing Programs Conference, or whatever it's called, in Washington D.C. And Julia and I and my wife, Wendy, and Stephen Dow, who was on the show before, and uh, a bunch of other folks were sitting outside of a bank of elevators on, like, the 10th floor of a hotel. For some reason, that's where we ended up laughing drunkenly and talking really loud. And Joyce Carol Oates, her room was right next to this seating area. And so she opened her door and poked her head out and asked us if we would please be quiet. And uh, we said, oh, yeah, sure, sure, no problem, no problem. She closed the door, and we're like, fuck, and started talking again <laughs> she opened the door again and looked out and said could you please be quiet and we were like oh yeah so sorry so sorry and we just kept talking and then about five minutes later a security guard came up yeah. and ushered us out of the hotel we got bounced by jco yeah Joyce carol Oates got us removed from the marriott in washington dc I'd, I'd like to point out i was not there no you were not there you were not there um, so before we get uh, to talk about the book you picked for us, so now that you are a big time famous novelist, your book is on the New York Times bestseller list. People are reading your book. Um, people are buying your book. Um, what has the experience been like talking to readers that uh, of your books, uh, of your novel compared to people who had read your poetry? Is it a different experience? Yeah, people actually read the novel. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. be wow. honest. So true. Yeah. It is true. And I mean, you know, it's who reads poetry? Mostly other poets. Um, unless you're super famous, which is like two poets. Um, although my editor at, at Random House um, edits a, one of the famous poets in America, which is Billy Collins. So that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, no, it's neat. Uh, I'm grateful. I'm humbled. Like that's That's one of the one of the the key things I've been carrying through this this process is is a deep gratitude and a, a deep humility and occasionally a deep humiliation but um, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that um, but you know it's just it's and then I I have this book in my hand and it's shiny and you know it's, it has a beautiful it has the most beautiful cover ever also oh and listeners no there's a great cover. video um, there's a great video that Random House put out that showed the 300 different iterations of the Housefrau cover 
Um, we'll put a link to that up on our on our Facebook. But there was it was like 150 different covers they tried out for this. Totally, right totally. And there was only like there was a couple that you know um, I had things to say about that I didn't really care for. <laughs> but um, there's actually there's two puns. You know how I feel about puns. There's two yes. puns on this cover, and there's a code on it. So I feel there's like a, they. This, there's two puns. There's two puns. Oh well, there's there's the there's the inset lettering, right? Right. It's 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 debossed. It's depressed. Right. Depressed lettering. Yes. And the what font. The, the, pun? the font is Helvetica. That's a deep pun. That's it's pretty <laughs> I mean, good though, isn't geek, it? That's a geek level pun. Yeah. <laughs> that is seriously a geek level because you know Switzerland Confederatio Helvetica, and right. but there's that's a code. A there's pun. a code in the flowers. So that's some Dan Brown shit. That. It is so Dan yeah. Brown. Wow. Yeah. It's you're gonna have people when the movie comes out. People are gonna deconstruct the cover to to understand the movie. Who who would you who would you cast in the movie? Um, I would cast. Hmm. Who would I cast? Uh, well, it doesn't matter who I'd cast. Who would you Who would you cast for for Anna? I have a little bit of an out there. Okay, I think this could be a breakout role for Jenna Fisher. Oh, I love her. She's great. Mm. She's the right age and comedy. Is is harder to do than drama, and if you like watch The Office, she makes sad faces a lot sometimes, and she can do the worried thing. I think she could really pull this off. Now I I'm seeing what's her name. Um, uh, oh God, um, from American Hustle and and Doubt, uh, she won the Academy Award. Amy Adams. <laughs> That was a exasperated sigh. Yeah. Yeah, she's too big right now, Todd. How dare you? Well, this is a is this a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. She's lining up for it. I don't see it. She's I don't been see doing it. a lot. I also saw. Yeah. Go ahead. She, well, Amy Amy Adams is the one who could actually get the movie. Yeah, a wide it's audience, true. You know? right. It's true. Um, I also see Liam Neeson fifteen years ago as Bruno. Yes. No, it's uh, Michael Fassbender. <laughs> oh, that's good. There you go. That's good. Yeah. Or, or uh, yeah. Um, but I also, yeah. when I was writing it on my in my fantasy casting, I I, I liked um, Kate Winslet. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. In my fantasy casting for everything, it's John Cusack in Say Anything. Oh please! I still have never seen role. that movie. You've never seen Say Anything? No. And Alvin makes fun of me. Oh my god! I know you're gonna fire me, aren't you? Yeah, I probably am. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the book you picked for us to read, Jill, since we've talked about uh, Housefrau. So everyone go out and buy uh, Jill Alexander Esbaum's Housefrau. Um, it is probably not available at your local bookstore because everyone has already bought it. So you'll have to go back a couple times. Um, but it's out now, and it's on the new fiction rack at your Barnes & Noble. Um, you said so rack. tell us about the book you picked for us to read. I picked a book of poems called Interrobang. Uh, which includes the word bang. Um, and it's by the poet Jessica Piazza. It's her first book of poetry. And uh, if you, uh, an interrobang is, some of you, or maybe all of you know what that is, it's a punctuation uh, mark. 
and it's a punctuation mark that is a question mark and an exclamation point um, melded into one. And uh, the cover is, is pretty neat. Um, it's got her, uh, it's actually a picture of Jessica. And oh, that is? Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. And uh, the, the dot on the, um, the interrobang is where her eye is. And uh, the poems are a collection of explorations of very strange, you may even say, I, I like to use this word, I don't get a chance to, outre, <laughs> phobias and philias. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you can't even pronounce half this stuff, you know. Um, right. Um, I, had to, I had to look them up to see if they were real. They are real. Oh, yeah. They are, they are real. Um, like, melophobia, fear of music. Um, <laughs> okay. Bear with me here. Pediophilia, not ped... Dophilia. It means love of dolls. And what you may or may not have noticed, hopefully you have noticed, is many of these are sonnets. Um, but she's so good at uh, sonneteering is that, uh, that they're, you can't always tell that she's writing a sonnet, you know, uh, because the rhythm is hidden and there's enjambment and the, the rhyme sort of slides into the next line. And there's also, um, in this book, um, let's see, where is it? Uh, like, People Like Us, uh, there's a poem in here, that's, and it's called A Crown of Sonnets, and um, it's where the last line of the first sonnet becomes the first line of the next sonnet. They're incredibly yeah. hard to write. Um, that one, that one, I, I that was one of my favorites, and I, I didn't know what that was called. What, what is that word, the last line repeats? Uh, it's, the first line, what's it called? it's called a crown, and there's a crown, a crown of sonnets. Um, there's uh, there's two of them. Yes, right? there's uh, the prolific um, is another one, and I uh, Jessica is a very good friend of mine, and she's a fantastic poet. And uh, I've I've known. Oh, and there's a, there's another one in here. What I hold, and so it, it's sort of it, it's sort of actually these these sort of uh, hold the book together. There's sort of a a, a, a glue in this, and. Uh, which is, is, is good. It's, it's actually a really smart uh, uh, artistic move because a book that's just phobias and philias I think would, would fall apart a little bit. And, and the phobias and philias are nice because like a phobia is a question mark and a philia is an exclamation point, you know, and it's, they sort of, you know, they're, they're sort of these strange obsessions. And, uh, and, mm. and I think this book really um, spins on that idea of obsession, you know. Um, not the cologne, but um. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now that is a book of poetry I would read. <laughs> All about the cologne. Oh Damn my it, gosh, that is wrong. deep. That is some Dan Brown. <laughs> well, I I was so excited when I realized they were these were sonnets. I think it took me two or three to be like, oh, there's a lot of rhyming towards yeah. the end of this. Oh, <laughs> um, I love sonnets. <laughs> They're my favorite form of poetry I think just from being a Shakespeare geek when I was younger oh, yeah. um, but it is amazing how she like is just living on the edge of you know rhyming can be so difficult to pull off especially throughout the book so I don't know I just thought the the structure of the sonnets and how they like dance with being so chatty and casual in this really um, formal form was it was really great that's 
I was immediately drawn into the format of each poem. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. And she's taught me a lot about prosody and and uh, the actually we have matching geeky prosody tattoos, she and I. Uh, the <laughs> would you like to hear about those? There Yes. Yeah. Well, please. they're on our feet and on our right foot is a marking of what you would use when you're counting um, on a poem what's called a trochee and it's a little bowl and you know for the uh, I'm sorry it's it's a it's a mark for the accent and then a little bowl for the unaccented syllable and a trochee is like uh, the syllable like in William Blake's tiger 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 burning brightness on a right foot because that is the foot that you march forward with right it's a little more aggressive and then Stress first, right, right and then we have an i am on our left foot which is the bowl right and then mm-hmm. for the unaccented syllable and then the um the what is it the the line for the accent and it's on the left side because it's the heartbeat our hearts beat in i am right but um but um and that's what shakespeare writes in iambic pentameter i ams you know um uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, what lips my lips have kissed and where and why. Now, it's also a pun because individual units of these measures feet feet. are feet. So there are poetic feet. <laughs> that's right. awesome. I like and that. we're dorky <laughs> as mm-hmm. hell. Um, but yes, yeah, she taught me pretty much everything. I, I mean, you know, up until that point, I was just doing a lot of listening and my ears aren't always the best. I hear things kind of crooked. And, uh, you know, uh, she taught me how to chase sound a lot and and i i think i learned a lot from that and i try to pass that on to my students and they're like what i want to write about you know ponies i'm like no chase sound you know let's let's, let's see what's going to happen and I, they don't write about ponies but that was just an example but um <laughs> <laughs> i wish they would write about ponies that'd be great <laughs> i think a, a, a good poem about a pony could probably get you in the new yorker that that would probably be the okay, thing well, in fact by the way julia Ryder and i also have matching tattoos um I have Lou, Julia has Diamond, and Ryder has Phillips. All of us tattooed <laughs> on the small of our back. We all have to be together. <laughs> I we all love together, it. Yeah. For I any of it to it. make sense. Which Lou Diamond, is this, is this um, La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips? Or is this like, what's the one where he's like, Yeah, this, the is, this is the first iteration of Lou Diamond Phillips. Okay, yeah, I like that one. Richie Valens. Before the comeback. Bob. Yeah. But I you like mean we, we just have the name, or we have like a third of his face? <laughs> no, we just have I the have... name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's been a misunderstanding then, because I just have like chin to nose. What's he doing these days? Oh, you went you went vertical. I, I didn't. I was thinking we have to like stand next to each other horizontally with our biceps or something. All right. So now in your version, we have to like stack up against. You should each other. do right. like a rebus where it's like Lou. I don't know, what, like and do the toilet and right. then a diamond and then a diamond and then like a Phillips screwdriver right. and then a Phillips screwdriver. Yeah, yes. it's a rebus. Yes. Yeah. that's what those are called. Like highlights for children. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh! Somebody Perfect. told me they saw one of my poems in highlights once, and I was like, "No, you didn't." And they said, yeah, I did. And so I went and uh, checked it out. And it was that other poet, Jill Espaum, spelled with one S. And she's a children's poet. Oh, my God. What a terrible overlap. It's wonderful. <laughs> We're Facebook friends. It's so weird. And you weird. have a doppelganger poet? Yeah. That is creepy. A little bit. <laughs> in a wonderful way. So she's a children's um, poet, and you are an erotic Jesus poet. So it's probably more difficult yeah. for her. Um, and a New York Times bestselling novelist, Todd. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cool. yeah. 
So you own the name now. Yeah. Um, so back to the poem. Well, back to the poems. Yeah. 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 This is a fantastic book. This is, you know, it's so funny because usually when we read poetry on Literary Disco, it's um, great because it's short. And I feel like, you know, I can read it in a couple of days as opposed to some of the novels or like when we did uh, uh, Pillars of the Earth. No. That took me about yeah. two months to read. Yeah, and it was miserable. Um, but this one, even though I read it in the course of three days or whatever, I feel like I just barely scratched the surface. This is a really... Um, I, I don't feel like equipped to talk about it yet. I... I love it um and it took me a while it took me like i would say 10 to 15 poems before i really really fell in love with it um and it was around the time that i i kept having that moment of like who does this remind me of who does this remind me of and um uh and i had a a teacher in college who made us read gerard manley hopkins uh. a bunch and it was I, I had I, I knew the line and it was I, I ended up having to look it up but there was a line you know that he ends one of his poems uh, carry on comfort which is a great poem and it's always stuck with me and it ends with you know I'm wrestling with my God my God and it was when she had a religious poem that it finally hit me I was like that's who I keep thinking of and then of course I looked in the back of the book and like every everybody mentions Hopkins so obviously I'm not alone and um, and I'm not like a huge you know Hopkins fan by any means but there's such a um a love of language and such a playfulness with language that almost supersedes meaning at times or at least supersedes immediate meaning and that's what it's the language is so beguiling that I get through a poem really quickly love it read it three times love it even more still have no idea what it's saying mm -hmm. um and so I feel I need to go back and read more. Um, I love it though. Um, and I think that this kind of poetry is so hard to pull off. Uh, and that's why I think the first like 10 or 15 poems for me, I was like, eh, is this like sophomoric? Is this kind of this like fun word soundy, you know, I keep hearing Todd's poet voice while I'm reading it. <laughs> oh my gosh, well, you know, going to hunt you down. <laughs> but, because, but you know what I'm saying? No, no, there's, yeah. there, there's, it's an easy, this is an easy thing to do poorly. It is a very right? easy um, thing to do poorly. It's a, and, you know, this is yeah. when I say like chasing sound, which sounds like a terrible like lifetime for TV movie. Um, <laughs> she was death. deaf. Yes. He was yeah. blind. Chasing sound. Mm. Um, yeah, something like that. Um, the um, What I mean sort of fundamentally is, you know, sort of not privileging this, I'm going to sit down and write a poem about this. Or, you know, I'm going right. to write about this and here's what I've decided the poem is going to be about. You know, or here's how the poem's going to wind up, you know, and, and I don't do this, you know, like, like I, w I, I walk or for my exercise or I did until I broke my foot and now it's healed sort of, and I'm doing it again. And I, I go for these walks in the morning before the sun comes up and I've got a little tape recorder, except it's digital, so you can't call it tape recorder anymore. And I, I talk into it and I try to write these poems and I like never know where to begin, but like I find a place and then I chase the words just to see where they'll take me. And then, you know, when I get home, I, you know, sort them out. But 
I think that she does that too. And Mm -hmm. like one word plays off the next, plays off the next because it's like she's figuring something out. She doesn't know what she mm-hmm, said. Right. She doesn't know what it is already. Because when you sometimes, I, I think more often than not, and this is where the sophomoric stuff really comes into play, I think, more often than not, when you sit down to write a poem and you already know what it is you're going to say, I mean, who cares? Like, really, like you hit a ceiling so fast that you're really going to have right. to be some, some kind of poet to make it any good it, hmm. it, it, it as, as when students do this i mean they they, they come off didactic they're they're right. they're preachy and they're just plain boring you know so if you're saying okay i know i'm going to write a love poem that i'm, I'm going to write a, a poem to this person i can't have you you can't know what the final conclusion of the poem is before you start to write it I think is that's like that. I think so. I think you have to be hmm. like, okay, so not to not to go back to like my novel, but I was pretty sure I knew how it was going to end. But I mm-hmm. didn't, I left the ending open and I didn't write the last chapter till I'd finished the rest of the book. And I actually wrote it on Good Friday. Um, you know, actually, so it's like four years ago tonight i wrote it on good friday and i wanted to leave it open because just in case and as i left it open there's a character that completely showed up out of the blue i hadn't planned him i didn't know he was gonna it's the priest i didn't know he was and a priest walked into the bar and he just showed up so if you leave it open then a surprise can happen you know if you plan well, let it me ask, out let me ask you a question about one of the poems the, the poem that i actually love the most here and i should i should note that i know jessica also um, but lovely. I've never, I had never read a single word Jessica had ever written. So this was one of those weird experiences where I read a book by someone that I've known for a few years and was like, Oh too. fuck. She's going to, she's going to pound your shoulder again. Yeah. Last time I, or last year, this time I saw her, I just had shoulder surgery and she punched me in the shoulder and I nearly, I nearly passed out. Um, but her, this, this one poem that really struck me is the shortest one in the book and it's asymmetrophobia. Yes. Fear of asymmetrical things. Yes. And it's not a poem that I imagine has the same weight when it's read aloud as it is when it's seen on the page. Um, but here is a poem. It's it's three lines. But clearly Jessica knew what she was going to write about because she's writing about the fear of asymmetrical things. But so uh, we should just describe what it looks like. So the, the poem is, here's the torment only the warped heart knows. One side withers. The other grows and grows. However, between one side withers and the other grows is a giant space. So it is an asymmetrical two sentences on top of each other, which would make a person with the fear of asymmetrical things go fucking batshit. Um, well, but no, it's, it's so, actually one side withers, the other grows. That's symmetrical. And then and grows. And it's got this little tail right. at the end. You know, it's it's really smart, actually. You know, because if you if if you bend it in the middle after one side withers, the other grows. It it does fold over, and and it. Rith- mm-hmm. I was with her when she wrote this, uh, and and it's just super smart because it's unexpected. If she stopped right. at one side withers, the other grows. I mean, it's a little clever because right. because it's unexpected in the way that like well, it's symmetrical. So how I mean, it's she's so afraid of asymmetry that she wrote a symmetrical poem. You know, right. but it, but there's even just that that the extra space between one side withers and the other grows, right? Um, which is, I mean, like I saw it and I was like, oh, 
man, if I had this fear right now and I was reading this poem, I'd be over the fucking edge, Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's really smart. I I hear what you're saying, Jill, and I agree, but I also want our listeners to know, you know, I don't want them to get the idea from this discussion that these poems are in any way obscure or even that abstract. I mean, they're about... No. I mean... The, the exact line where I was like, okay, I think I'm going to really like this, is this sonnet rhymed. It was, it's like the third poem. It's very early. But it, uh, uh, I will, I might, I must. Such surefire track to lack. A certain fade to black. Oh, fuck it. Holler back. I mean, that's, a, that's the tone of a lot of these poems. And one of my favorite ones is also a non-sonnet. Um, okay. Can I pronounce this? Let's find out. Uh, Calignephobia Calignephobia Which is fear of a beautiful woman Um, So I'm just going to read it It's really short Mm -hmm. I carry who I used to be Inside my heart A slight of hurt The ugly girl I was at first Lives in this fist My hidden trick Those nights when handsome boys unstick And exit quick I wake her up Still in my clutch Enraged Then punch I mean, that is such a good poem. And, I mean, I feel like so many... uh, We've had a few poetry collections where I've said this, but I really feel like this is a great uh, collection for our listeners who don't think they like poetry. The subjects are very familiar. The language is beautiful. The structures are classic enough. And those rhymes or slant rhymes are just so... You know, they're bewitching in a way. They're really, really musical and lyrical. This is the kind of story yeah, song and they're I not, like. <laughs> Right. And they're not, they're not, you know, uh, sing song. Mm-hmm. No. You know, it, I mean, there's, there's, there's that, um, I, I call poems like this, bear with me. Uh, if you're, of course you've watched Prices, right? right? Of course. Right. How dare you? What, there's, what's the best game on Prices, right? The, for me, it's the wheel. This, okay. The- <laughs> Besides that. Um, where's the one where you win a car? <laughs> okay, well, Plinko. Plinko. Do you yes, like Plinko? Okay, yes. Plinko. So you know how like the little thing when you drop it down there, it goes like doink, 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 mm-hmm. and it sort of like goes in this. It, it doesn't go evenly, and so I call these like Plinko poems. You know, it sort of like bounces unevenly around. Mm-hmm. So it's not like exactly like a sonnet where it's like blah 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 blah, blah rhyme. Blah, 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 rhyme. But it's like blah, blah, rhyme, blah, 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 rhyme, blah, right. rhyme, you know. And it's just nice because it's yeah. unexpected and it's fun, but it's also unnerving the way that I think a poem should really be because, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. It should it should yank the, the, the rug out from under you a little bit because otherwise, you know, it's a, it's a Thomas Kincaid painting. Right. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know? And um, <laughs> the other thing is, is so these true. really are meant to be read aloud. They, I don't think they work with your eyes. They, they're, you have to hear them aloud. So, and, and maybe you have to hear somebody else read them. You know, they, maybe they don't work in your own voice almost. But uh, um, I'm, I'm just quite a fan of these. And, you know, maybe because I copy her. Well, you know what? The, there's two that I was really fascinated by. Um, which is the one is the love of mirrors and then the next one is the fear of mirrors um so it's ease uh, fuck isopetrophilia is love of mirrors and fear of mirrors is isopetrophobia um and 
you know, at, at first I didn't realize the mirroring of some of these poems back to back, but these two, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh man, this is this is the point at which I realized next time I see Jessica, I have to be like, oh, I, I didn't realize um, your godlike intelligence and ability to convey language. Um, so the first one, Love of Mirrors, impression pressed upon the glass perfects even the grossest forgeries. Reject the sea, reject the turning tide. Just below clear water, I reside as duplication of the lake. Take me away, another underneath again. What mirrors cannot ditto isn't sin. And then the next poem, Fear of Mirrors, is What mirrors cannot ditto isn't sin, simply performed behind the glass. Within the frame of window pane, negated dark. Those fleeting squares reveal our darkness back. Aloof, the rain plays taps. Above, the trees are inimitable. Distinct, thus blessed, reflected, I am never at my best. I mean, back to back, it's just, you know, it's, it's her ability to convey this simple object of the thing we see constantly, the mirror, and also to deal with sort of the issue of narcissism that comes along with it um, in a new and fresh way to give, to give beauty to something mundane in our lives, really, um, I think is... Um, I think that's the best thing that she does in this collection. Um, makes you look at some of these everyday objects and fears and emotions that you have and feel differently about them. I think you're right. And, you know, fears uh, and, and obsessions, they... Well, you know, a, a fear is, is like a, an actual present danger. It's a clear and present danger. I don't know where I've heard that before, but, you know, it's a thing. <laughs> You know, an anxiety is a potential danger, you know, and it's anxieties that generally, you know, it's, it's, there's a bear somewhere out there that might come attack me, even though I live in Texas and I'm in a house, you know, upstairs right. with the doors locked, you know, and mm -hmm. if I'm thinking about it and worrying about it and obsessing over it, and they are the things that get blown out of proportion. And so it makes a lot of sense that the language becomes bigger than what I would usually you know, used to talk about like, oh crap, what if a bear comes, you know? Um, and the same thing with like, you know, a love of something, you know, think about like the, the last time you went apeshit over something that maybe you shouldn't have. Um, and uh, um, it, it just, it just feels natural. It feels, it feels, you know, I keep saying it's smart, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not just, it's not intellectual smart. It's, right. it's like, uh, artistic smart, you know, it's and, like get smart. And isn't it unusual? And and I'm sure Ryder and Julia, you have an opinion about this about reading poems, love poems, or a poem about losing love when you have attained love. So you're married and you're in a stable relationship, and you're reading these emotions that you used to have, um, or these fears you used to have to, mm -hmm. to move someone to care about those things, I think is a challenge um, when you yourself are not always feeling the same emotions. Oh, I only feel that when I read poetry. I don't feel that way when I read novels. Are, are you guys at all similar? So you're saying that now that we're perfect, isn't it great of us to deign to remember the more difficult times? <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I don't feel as far away from it as you do. And I, what I think makes makes these good love poems is it's about 
you know, the speaker and the speaker's insecurities or the speaker's conflict, you know? So, I mean, there will, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be as, as far away from my insecurities and deepest fears as you're employing. I, uh, implying, I mean, um, employing. Well, oh my God. I see someone once a month that helps with that. <laughs> so, <laughs> once a month? Really? Yeah. Um, Try twice now. a week. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, what I'm more. saying <laughs> is there, you know, they're universal experiences, you know, like loneliness. Mm-hmm. We're never sure. far away from loneliness. You know, anything could happen. The worst could happen. Um, right. And, you, you know, I could be punching the air in the darkness of my bedroom anytime. So I think it's good <laughs> for us to stay in touch with these feelings, even if we think our experiences at the moment don't match what we're what we're reading hmm. interesting writer what, what, what do you think, think writer yeah i don't know i mean i i i definitely know what you're saying that there's a um well there's a lack of narrative to poetry in general but especially to these poems i feel like like uh, you can put a narrative into a lot of these um and you know but when she opens one of the, the first poem or i guess it's actually the second people like us which is sort mm-hmm. of the tug and pull of a not so great relationship. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think poetry can do that better than than fiction <laughs> or even mm-hmm. nonfiction because she's able to capture um, the inner turmoil without needing to um, give us that. You know, what's the uh, the objective correlative that you know somebody like T.S. Eliot would would always seek for. There's like a real, just on it. I mean the the music. The fact that she opens with a music poem or fear of music. I mean there is mm-hmm. something musical to the language, and there's something immediate to the way that she's speaking and that or her poems speak. Um, that I love. I mean and I think that that's that rawness is so great and. I don't need to know the whole story. I just know, based on the title, sure. people like us, that there's some awful tug and pull of a relationship. And it's, I mean, I don't know. I can relate to that. I don't need to be, mm-hmm. you know, in that state myself well, now. Right. You know, you say, you say, you know, you, you make a distinction between, you know, what's like fiction is a narrative and, and maybe like poetry or especially poetry like this lacks a narrative. I, I would say that like, <laughs> I like to think of it as having a hyperdimensional narrative, sure. you know, just maybe not, maybe not a, a, a linear narrative, you know, maybe kind of one of these Art Bell, you know, Michio Kaku narratives right. where, you know, right. it, 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 um, exists not a, a little bit outside of time and it's a little bit, you know, um, not bound by, uh, you know, what we think of as, you know, you know, a, a particular order. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you mentioned Elliot. I mean, you know, you look at something like like Proof Rock, and and the guys, which is my favorite poem. Uh, it's it's a little bit warped, and it does tell kind of a story, but he's a little bit warped, you right. know. And it's he's he's rambling, you right. know. So so you know, you look at it as a monologue. It's just sort of this moment. But you look at it as a poem, and you wonder, okay, well, what's the underlying story? You don't need to know it because right. the music of it sends you through this guy's you know 
sorry self. Right. right. And and I think I, I think you know what you just said is something that I've told my students dozens of times, which is, I, I don't care what it means. I feel what it means right. when right. it's good. Right. When mm-hmm. it's not good, then you need to do right. better. Yeah, that's that's the weird thing. I mean, actually, this is I think the first book of poetry we've read on the show that doesn't have an overarching sort of traditional narrative voice like you know gabriel or um when my brother was an aztec or smith blue uh, or or the cathedral of nervous horses um and i think we've done a couple other poetry books all those actually end up being fairly narrative Mm -hmm. poets and poetry collections whereas this one is much more of a standard um well because they're sonnets you know that it lacks that um, that feel that I like as uh, reading stories. But I mean, obviously, I, I, I like this a lot and I like the individual poems, but it's an interesting sort of experiential thing, I think, for me, um, of being able to read some of the poems and recognize the beauty of it and still not have it um, be moved by it, but not throw me into a tizzy of sadness and self reflection like Gabriel did, um, you know where I'm applying everything I read to myself. You know, that this is a much more ethereal reading experience, I think. This is much more... I mean, the way I was thinking about this book is, like, this is poetry for poets. Or this this is the poet's Mm -hmm. poet. Do you know what I mean? Like, the way that people talk about, like, a songwriter, songwriter, or... I feel like this is really... um, Because it's going for... It's going for... Who would be a songwriter, songwriter? uh, Like a Uh, Tom Waits. Jason Isbell. Okay. Like God. somebody who yeah. somebody who is not Can't gonna ever here, somebody who's never me. gonna achieve a, a certain popularity. R. Kelly. Yeah, R. Kelly. Yeah, let's not get into the songwriting. R. Kelly. But, <laughs> I, I just feel like there's 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 a level of um of real sophistication going on in in each one of these palms and and I feel like like I said earlier I feel like I've just scratched the surface and part of that is because. You know, like like you were saying, Todd, a lot of the other poems that we've read, and I feel like contemporary poetry in general, like the, and maybe this has changed because I'm not by any means, I don't keep up with contemporary poetry enough, but I feel like there's often uh, an idea first or an mm-hmm. image first movement. It's like they, we, we, you know, the poet wants to put you into a very specific moment or a very specific image or a very specific story. And I don't feel like she's really reaching for those things. I feel like she's trying to draw you into the poem itself with the sound and the rhythm. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to just enjoy it as a poem and then reread it. Or then in the middle of that, be struck by the way that un and raveling were separated on the page and that that suddenly sparked a mental connection in you that speaks to you and an emotional reaction i mean it's just such a different approach to poetry mm-hmm. than i feel like i've read in a long time and that's yeah that's a it's, it's a it's really classic. certain type of, but it's not cla- i mean i guess maybe it's more classical in some ways but like i was saying the only it's person classic, i could think of with was a modern with a modern spin to it yeah it's like um I mean, I think that's that's sort of what you said, Julia, where, you know, it, it's familiar in that Shakespearean way, but then all of a sudden it it brings you forward to present day, that it's applicable to a human being in their car versus yeah. someone walking the English countryside. Yeah, I think it's very classical. I mean, it really reminded me of Edna St. Vincent Millay a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I'm by no means an expert, but it's just got that sense of, 
form and control that to me is very classical while throwing in words like hollerback right <laughs> thank you for for recommending it so this was intero bang by jessica piazza it was published by red hen press the venerable poetry press and it, we should also mention um that it won a room of her own foundations to the lighthouse poetry prize um which is a big award in the poetry world. And that uh, Eloise Klein Healy um, was the person who gave her that award. And this is how it all rolls back into literary disco. Eloise Klein Healy was the poet laureate of Los Angeles, who was the person who, when I announced I needed to read more poetry in the LA Times, contacted me and said, okay, I read that. Now you have to read more poetry. And sent us um, and told me to read uh, When My Brother Was an Aztec and Smith Blue by... Uh, uh, Camille Camille so um, she's got uh, she's got good taste clearly and Jill Esbaum's best-selling novel Housefrau out now from Random House you can buy it wherever fine smutty books filled with sex Not are smutty, it's and I should I should can I put it can I can I read my favorite line from Housefrau Hold I on. know what it is what, what page is I it know on? what it is is it it's like page 50 isn't it yeah so did I Somewhere what are you talking there? about um, it's, it's, just, not, it's not the it's dinner just night. Tip, is actually <laughs> yeah. What happened? It's it's the Jesus. it's the it's early when he's she's talking about uh-huh. sex. Um, so just so you guys all know, this is not a book if you're 13 that you're allowed to go out and buy. You have to be at least 16, right, Jill? You know, I read this kind of stuff when I was 13. You remember Bible Me under too. the bed? <laughs> yeah. So did you, Todd? Eternal right now. I'm just I'm just saying, it's it's quality. Um, but if, if you don't believe us, uh, go read the reviews. It's been, it's been receiving great reviews all over the country, um, and I love it myself. It's also a great audiobook. So I both read the book and then listened to it on audio in between readings. Um, and it's a wonderful audiobook as well. Uh, so, Jill, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, we'll bring you back next time we need help um, figuring out sex and poetry. You're very welcome. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Our show is edited, produced, interrupted, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. <laughs>